A little forest bathing beneath the towering redwoods gave Don George a boost in coping with the pandemic. Absorbing their wisdom and their sense of, this will all be okay. There's another kind of tree that helps the Basque communities in Spain and France keep connected to their history. This is very special because of the Guernica oak tree, which has been a symbol of freedom and democracy for the Basque people since the Middle Ages. We always had a link with our brothers from there because we've got the same language, the same culture. Guides from both sides of the border help us plan a visit to Basque country. And what makes for a perfect Sunday afternoon in a typical village in the English countryside? It's the thwack of a cricket bat on a cricket ball on the village green. Just get yourself an elderflower and gooseberry ice cream at the shop there. English villages, Basque cities, and finding silver linings in the pandemic. It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Come along. My Facebook friends are a fun community of curious travelers, and you're invited to join in. To stow away with me in my work, play, politics, philanthropy, and travels, follow me at Rick Steves on Facebook. They're so pretty they might even be featured on a gift box of chocolates. Coming up, we'll hear how quaint and picturesque villages are still very much alive all over England. And we'll learn what's distinct about the Basque communities on either side of the border of Spain and France, where the Basque country is actually part of two countries. That's all in the hour ahead on today's Travel with Rick Steves. Travel writer and editor Don George has turned his restlessness in quarantine into a new appreciation for travel closer to home. Don's an editor-at-large for National Geographic Traveler. He hosts the National Geographic Life Series. And during the pandemic, Don's travels have been limited to California, but he's given a lot of thought to his beloved Wanderlust. He's written an ebook called Wanderlust in the Time of Coronavirus, Dispatches from a Year of Traveling Close to Home. And Don joins us now to discuss the 10 silver lining lessons of the COVID pandemic for travelers. Don, thanks for being with us. My pleasure, Rick. It's great to be here. It's wonderful to see you, as, as always. So on a normal year, you spend a lot of time away from home, and uh, this has been a different time. I'm normally away half the year, basically. Half the and year. this year, I have not been anywhere internationally, anywhere outside the Bay Area, really. Man, you're one of the most positive people I know, so leave it to you to find a silver lining <laughs> in this pandemic cloud. So I'm just going to, this is just fun. We're going to blitz through 10 silver linings for the traveler, or through the traveler's mindset. Uh, of this pandemic period. Number one, our planet is intricately interconnected. We learned that in a difficult way when you know a, a virus in a market in China spread around the globe within a couple of months. But we learned it in a very positive way, I think, in the sense that I've been able to communicate with people all around the planet this year. I've been able to travel in my mind all around the planet this year. It's in many ways brought me closer together with people than than ever before. And I think we've learned that I would imagine this is the first of a new kind of uh, crisis that will confront us, and it confronts all of humanity at the same time. So we better take advantage of our interconnectedness. Point number two, treasures abound in our own backyard. Yes. So first of all, I began to travel literally in my own backyard, and I noticed the freesia and the bird of paradise and the persimmon tree. And then I took it a little bit further, and I went to Muir Woods and the Golden Gate Bridge and Point Reyes, 
And I, all these world-class wonders that people travel halfway around the planet to see in my backyard, I suddenly was discovering for the first time and realizing, yes, I do live in an amazing place. I should really appreciate it more deeply. And I think all of us, wherever we live, we can notice that. You get into the rhythm of nature and appreciation of it, and you don't need to travel for that. You're celebrating our environment. Exactly. And that's, exactly. A, that's a real blessing. Number three, life is more rewarding in the slow lane. Yes, traveling slowly, taking your time, appreciating everything from the warm cup of tea that you're holding in your hands to the stone moai that you picked up when you were in Eastern Island. And you can look at it closely and remember the, the craftsman who sold it to you and what the weather was like that day and all the adventures you had after you got it. All of that is, is just slowing down and paying attention and really appreciating what you've got right in front of you. And Don, you have an advantage because you happen to be married to a wonderful Japanese woman, and I think Japanese culture is more comfortable with slowing down and with silence. Yeah, absolutely. And in our culture, we're afraid of slowing down and we're afraid of silence. Uh, right. This is an opportunity. It, it totally is. One thing I always do when I go to Kyoto is go to Ryoanji Rock Garden and sit there and contemplate the rocks and the moss and the stones for an hour or two hours. Nothing happens and yeah. everything happens. You know, you can get arrested for that in the United States. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> point, point number four, nature has the power to heal. Yes, I found that. I, I found that especially going to Stinson Beach, Point Reyes, and Muir Woods. Forest bathing took on a whole new meaning for me, getting out and among the, the incredibly old, beautiful redwoods in Muir Woods and just absorbing their wisdom and their sense of, this will all be okay. Okay, I've not heard this term before, but forced bathing, it sounds nice. I love to have a shower in a, in a waterfall. <laughs> right. I go out into the woods and I kind of open my soul up and I just say, I just want to become a tree. I'm just going to be absorbing you. And I actually, lit I literally hug the tree. I hug the tree and I absorb its energy. Don, that takes me to Estonia. Estonia has this uh, unique, as far as I know, culture of having their cemeteries in forests. Oh, wow. And their loved ones are, oh. over time, represented by the trees that tower above their tombs. What a perfect idea. I love it. Forest bathing. Yeah. Hey, point number five, wonderlust abides within and without. Yes. So I discovered this in, in April when I went in search of cherry blossoms because I was supposed to be in Japan, exhilarating in the cherry blossoms, but instead I was home. So I found them in my local park. And I realized that they were beautiful cherry blossoms, a 10-minute walk from my home. And then I got transported to Kyoto by admiring the cherry blossoms at home. Suddenly, I remembered a moment in Kyoto a year earlier when I'd been admiring cherry blossoms there. So Kyoto was inside me yeah. in a way. And I just yeah. had to tap into it. Seeing those cherry blossoms in my hometown brought me to Kyoto in my soul. If I was uh, invested in a lot of stock for airlines, I would be very threatened by your newfound <laughs> ability to travel right. by just looking at a cherry blossom. <laughs> this is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Don George. And, and Don's uh, uh, an editor with the National Geographic, and he's been writing and editing books for decades. And he's been locked down like the rest of us for the last year or so, and he's written an e-book. It's called Wanderlust in the Time of Coronavirus, Dispatches from a Year of Traveling Close to Home. Don's website is don-george.com, and you can learn about getting that ebook there. Don, point six, we can see the world without leaving our desk. Right. This was fascinating to me that I found websites. There's one called The View From My Window, they're, they're where people were just posting what they were seeing from their everyday window. 
I could literally travel around the world by going to that website. If you're missing Greece, there's somebody in Greece who has a, they're showing you what they're seeing from their window. And oh, okay. Point number seven, we can also welcome the world into our own home. Right. Um, I lead trips for geographic expeditions, and I've been talking to a lot of the other guides that work for GeoX also, bringing them into my home, doing interviews with them. We've posted the interviews on the website, and I feel like we're able to stoke our wanderlust that way. I ask them, what is it you most love about your, your home country? And they just enthuse and enthuse. And I get to take a little trip to yeah. you know, wherever they're speaking to me from. Bhutan or Tanzania or wherever. And I feel like, oh, yes, thank you for guiding me. Boy. I know you're not guiding me in person, but you're guiding me virtually. And, and all of these going. ways to reach out during a lockdown. I mean, imagine 100 years ago in the earlier flu pandemic. Uh, there was, right. This would have been unimaginable to communicate right. across countries and to the other hemisphere. Point number eight, embracing is key to letting go. Letting go is key to becoming whole. Hmm. Yeah, I... I found this at, at the beach, at Stinson Beach, um, where I, I kind of go every year to think about things and put things in perspective. And of course, this has been a particularly challenging year. And I realize how much we've all suffered a lot and we kind of need to embrace our suffering. Mm -hmm. We need to sort of acknowledge and say, yes, it's been very hard. We've lost loved ones. We've lost our income. Our lives have been disrupted and turned upside down. Let's embrace that and then let's think about what we have to love and be grateful for in our world, our friends, the people who are taking care of us and our planet, the future and, and the gifts we can bring from what we've learned this year to our future travels. And I thought about all that and I realized that you have to go through the suffering to find the healing. You have mm. to accept the suffering, embrace it, and then you can move on and really understand that we're still, the gift of life is, is an incredible gift mm. that we just need to appreciate and and work hard to bring into our life. I day. just hope and pray we come out of this COVID time with a better appreciation of the importance, the beauty, and the fragility of our environment. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Point number nine, we can shape the new world of travel. Yes, and I think, as I know you do, the pandemic has been an amazing opportunity to press the, the pause and reset buttons mm -hmm. on the way we travel mm. and to think about how precious and interconnected and fragile our planet is and how going forward, we really need to be more mindful of our impact on the world as travelers, our responsibility to the world as travelers, how we can make the planet a better place with every trip we take, with every step we make. Mm. Don George is back with us on today's Travel with Rick Steves from his home in Piedmont, California, to help us find silver linings from this long travel drought during the pandemic. We have links to Don's work with this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. Don, we're reviewing the 10 silver lining lessons of the pandemic. And now, roll the drums, point 10. <laughs> the journey begins and ends in gratitude. Yeah, I really think that's that's been the biggest lesson of the year for me, is to be grateful, even in a time of incredible stress and challenge and difficulty, to find the things and acknowledge the things that I'm grateful for, from my family, my friends, uh, my health, to the people who are taking care of our planet, doing mm -hmm. selflessly, spending hours and days and months just to try to get us out of the predicament that we're in, and uh, to be grateful for them. The flip side of gratitude is being a good steward, I think, also. 
Yes. To nurture. Absolutely. To nurture and right. protect. And uh, I've been thinking a lot during this pandemic of why we travel. And, you know, there's a lots of reasons. There's not a right reason or a wrong reason, but it's healthy to have a good mix. I mean, uh, the, the lower rung is we travel as tourists just to, mm-hmm. you know, check things off, just have fun, check things off our bucket list. The, the better way to travel in my mind would be, or the more thoughtful way would be as a traveler, what we call a traveler as opposed to a tourist who travels to learn and the ultimate way to travel in a lot of ways is as a pilgrim, to learn about ourselves, yes. <laughs> to, to, to realize we can learn about our home by leaving it and looking at it from a distance. Exactly. And we can put that whole mix together. Exactly. I say every journey is a pilgrimage, and I completely agree with you. Just as a final thought, Don, when we can travel again, what will you not do that you used to do before? I'm going to try very hard to just slow down constantly to keep in my mind i don't have to do five temples today i can do one temple or two temples and just really be in the temple and one really intense temple experience is better than five super fast ones and i think it's just really savoring every encounter every moment slowing down and being super appreciative of the gifts that the, the world gives us I think that's going to be big for me and also doing my best to give back whenever I can, wherever I go, thinking, what can I give back here? How can I be a good steward of this place so that people after me can appreciate the same things I've been appreciating here? Well, once again, Don, you're an inspiration. I love your energy and and you're having a huge impact. So thanks for all you're doing and happy travels, even if we're just staying home for a little while longer. Same to you, Rick. Thank you very much, as always. Those charming-looking small country towns that you see on British TV shows are for real. In just a bit, we'll hear about the traditions you'll find in a typical English village. But first, we explore the cities of Basque Country in France and Spain on Travel with Rick Steves. They're one of the oldest ethnic groups in Europe with a completely different language from its neighbors. The Basque Country predates the national borders of France and Spain. Its communities straddle the Bay of Biscay and go inland toward the mountains in both countries. Today, Basque Country is a prosperous region, popular for its seafood with festivals and traditions that go back thousands of years. To help us explore the cities of Basque Country, we're joined by Claire Loyeg. She lives in a small town of Hesperin, a bit inland from Bayonne. When not guiding tourists in France, Claire works on a sheep farm during the winter off-season. Augustine Sarisa is an accomplished ocean surfer and kayaker, and he specializes in leading hiking and recreational tours of Spain from his hometown of San Sebastian. It's also called Donastia in Basque. Our conversation was recorded pre-pandemic. Augustine and Claire, thanks for joining us. Thanks for inviting us. So it is interesting that your country... It's a nation without a state or something like that. Uh, and you've had some challenges. Uh, what's, what's the vibe right now in, in Basque Country in, in uh, Spain, Augustine? Well, in, time of, uh, in terms of politics, it can be a bit complicated. We are um, an old community. We're considered a pre-European community with a very old language spoken uh, and kept oral along this uh, time. We have records of us that go back to 5,000 years uh, we're divided by a frontier, France and Spain. In Spain, we have a state um, called the Basque Country. So Spain, Madrid gives you a state, just yes. like Catalan or Andalusia or something like yes, this. Yes, correct, correct. But when you say pre-European, that's interesting because Europe kind of started in 800 with Charlemagne or something like this, and you go back 
far, far before that. Before there was even a sense of Spain and France, it was just Basque people. Oh, yeah. But in modern times, of course, we do have the political border between Spain and France, and Basque country happens to be split. Claire, in French Basque country, what's the the general feeling? How's the economy? How's the tourism? How's the political tension uh, about Basque people wanting to have autonomy? Interesting, because we are quite different with the Spanish part. Um, in terms of tourism, we've got a lot of tourists in the Basque country because of our culture, because we've got ocean, mountains, etc. In the political way, um, it's interesting because our part was less uh, aggressive, perhaps, than the Spanish part because we don't have the same history. Mm-hmm. They had Franco, we had not. So it's it's quite different. But we always had a link with our brothers from there because we've got the same language, the same culture. So in somehow some Basque politics were hi- hidden in France. Right. And nowadays it's different because it has stopped. The, um, the ETA, the Spanish yeah, uh, separatists the ETA, are, are put down their arms and now we're just talking polite politics more. But it is interesting that because of Franco in Spain, he was anti-Basque, and the Basque people had to stand up. And consequently, we had the what people a lot of people call terrorism from the ETA, uh, people that were violent for the Basque rights. But in France, uh, people were more centralized. Yeah, uh, we, we had less violence, yeah. but we had small parts, like in villages in the countryside. Right. Close from the border, we had uh, some fight over there. Apart from the political history and, and so on, and, and we do want to stress that uh, the ETA has said, okay, we're not going to be mm-hmm. violent anymore. And it's, there's political discussion, but it's good news, I think, Augustine. Yes, it is, absolutely. This is we great. We have come to the good times, yeah. which uh, we all respect somehow each other. That's something to be thankful yes. for. When we look at Basque country, we have a sense of what Basque means. But when the Spanish Basques look at the French Basques, what do you see, Augustine? Well, I see some empathy. I mean, they're, they're proud of being Basque too. I mean, uh, the differences would be the dictatorship. They have not suffered a civil war, a dictatorship. Their relationship with the government of France is um, nicer to say. So they had a better 20th century. Much, yeah, much better 20th okay. century. And you feel like you're um, ethnically your you're brothers and sisters. Yes, yes. Claire, when you look at Spanish Basque people, are you jealous because they have better food? <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Impossible. We have really good food, too. <laughs> yeah, because I've never heard of anybody say, I'm going to Basque, French Basque country for the really? food. Everybody wants to go to San Sebastian for the gourmet for, tapas. Yeah, I know, for the tapas. <laughs> we have tapas, but they're less good than there. It's, oh, it's true. Okay, it's, yeah. it's totally true. But you're part true. of France, so you have a quality we've cuisine. We've got quality, and we've got also specific Basque dishes also, like ashoa, it's uh, veal meat that they don't have. Okay. We've got also uh, sheep cheese, and it's quite different from what they have. And we've got uh, things with a lot of fish, etc. So we have the same product, but we transform them in a different okay, way. Okay, so if I'm going to Basque country and I'm just going to San Sebastian, I'm just going to eat tapas and have the... Uh, the, the gourmet tapas, yeah. The pinchos. pinchos. That's what they say yes. in, in, in Basque language, pin, pinchos. pinchos. Uh, what would you say that, oh, you have to give a look at French cuisine in Basque country. What is a couple of dishes I should be sure to mm. look for? Uh, ashwa, what is really, really good with meat veal, uh, with rice or potatoes, uh-huh. whatever. Uh, you should try choro. So it's a mix of uh, different fishes, like it's a stew of fishes. Or oh, fish stew, a bouillabaisse. Mm, yeah, it's in Marseille, but it's, it's so a kind not, of... Yeah, 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 yeah. Sort of the it's, equivalent, it's, Basque yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, because you do face the sea, and you're famous for being a mariners, a lot of great Basque sailors. Now, I understand your boyfriend runs a sheep farm. Yeah. And you work with him. 
Yeah. I Mil- tried to help him. Milking the sheep? Yeah, I like it. <laughs> I really And the lambing is great because you've got to feed the small lamb. It's really good moment. Hard moment, but good moment. Hard work? Yeah, hard work. Hard work and good cheese. Yeah. <laughs> is, is, is it worth the hard work for the cheese? Yeah, it's a hard work. But <laughs> you know, you have to deserve the good cheese, so you've got to work hard. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Basque country with our French and Spanish Basque guides, Claire Loyog and Augustine Sarisa. You know, when we think about Basque country, there are great cities. And let's just do a quick review of the cities in Spanish Basque country. And just a, a very quick, what are the top three cities and how would they be different? Well, Bilbao is the largest by far in the area, in the northern Spain. Mm-hmm. Then uh, you find uh, San Sebastian by the ocean, beautiful food. Uh-huh. And then south you find the capital of the state of the Basque country in Spain, Vitoria. Vitoria? Vitoria. Ah, I've not been to Vitoria that has an interesting old town and a beautiful cathedral mm-hmm. and uh, also good food. It's on the way to the Rioja wine country. On the way to Rioja wine. And Bilbao is famous for the Guggenheim Absolutely. Museum there. So everybody loves the, the yes. Frank Gehry building and the, and the wonderful collection there. San Sebastian is, that was Franco's favorite vacation spot. Yeah, summer resort. Every, yeah. every summer, Franco, the dictator, yes. mellowed out. He had a palace right there on the beautiful beach. And today, there's no hint of the dictator, but there is the famously beautiful tapas scene. So I love San Sebastian for that. Guernica is a town that a lot of us know about because of the Picasso painting and the horrible bombing leading up to World War II and the Spanish Civil War. Guernica is special for all of Basque people. Yes, this is very special because of the Guernica oak tree, which has uh, been a symbol of freedom and democracy for the Basque people since the Middle Ages. Is that Spanish Basque or all Basque? Yeah, all Basque, all Basque in the area. Claire, is Guernica important for Spanish or for French Basque people? Yeah, yeah, a lot. We go a lot visit there to understand what's the importance of the place and the painting. So that's interesting. As a French Basque person, when you think of our heritage you're kind of ignoring the border because you go back before the border. Yeah, we, we had no border before, so we still have a lot of exchanging between yeah. the people, the shepherd in the mountains and, and the fishermen. So we had all our lifelong links together. Now, when we think of French Basque country, I, I know Bayonne, uh, Bayritz, Saint-Jean-de-Luz. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are the, how, would, how would those be described for a traveler planning a trip? So first, those cities are much more smaller than in the Spanish side. We've got small cities in the French part, okay? okay. Like Bayonne is the biggest one. It's 47,000 inhabitants. M- much smaller than Bilbao. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so just to give you an idea. Because Bilbao is an industrial power. of all of. Uh, it's important even in the Spanish economy. Yes. And and uh, Bayritz and, and Bayonne, they're old. They're smaller. Small like yeah. Biarritz is more a resort, like right. for really... In the history, it was for the Empress. So it was really a rich city. Bayonne, it's a great city. It's a medieval city with ramparts, historical city yeah. with the cathedral. So there are really two different ambiences in those two cities. And I got to be honest, I did not like Beiritz. I liked Bayonne. What, what would you say? I would say the same. I love Bayonne like, because it's a lively city. You've got students. You've got all the parts of the society, rich, poor students. Everybody's living here. But I really like also to go visiting and to stay uh, the Bay of Saint Jean de Luz because it's really cute. Yeah, I'm glad you said the Bay because Saint Jean de Luz is historic. It's a beautiful little town. It's my favorite town in in in, in the whole region in a lot of ways. And I climb up to the little um, there's a little dike, and then there's an elevated walkway along the uh, the balcony there. It's a crescent shaped beach, and it it looks to me like a scene that would inspire a French impressionist painter. 
Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's, it's true. gorgeous. Augustin Sarisa from Spain and Claire Loyeg from France are taking your calls about their home turf in Basque Country at 877-333-7425. Bill's on the line from Portland, Oregon. Hey, Bill, do you have any thoughts or concerns about your upcoming uh, travels through Basque Country? Yes, because I'm going through two different countries in this wonderful region, I was wondering if there's a town right on the border where a car rental company specializes in, hey, drop it off with no one-way fee in France and then pick up one right across the border in Spain. Bill, uh, when people are renting a car, it can be expensive to rent a car in one country and drop it in the other. You can just pay the, the fee for the convenience or you can rent a car in one country and drop it at another spot in that country for no extra fee and then take the train across the border, spend time in the town that you're starting, and then when you're leaving that town, rent another car. And that's the way to get around that um, can be expensive drop fee. Yes, that uh, my suggestion would be to drop it off at the train station in Indai, which is the border town with uh, Spain. There you can easily take the train to San Sebastian which takes uh, half an hour, 45 minutes, and they rent another car. Okay, so that's a very good tip. Hendai, it starts with H. Yes. So I guess we should leave this question with, what are some great afternoon uh, excursions to do in the town of Andai? Would you stay in Andai? I, would, I wouldn't stay in Andai. I would drive all the yeah. way to Andai and then commute to the Spanish side. You're so close to so many beautiful places. I wouldn't stay in Andai. Yeah. Stay in San Jean de Luz. That's beautiful. Yes. <laughs> and just just next door in this on the Spanish side, you find Onda Rivia. A medieval oh, looking one, yeah. town. Uh, I would stay there and rather that's, than that's Andai. That's a Spanish town, Onda Rivia. Onda Rivia. Start H O N H O N D A double R I B I A. On the river. Those are nice towns, but do not stay in Endai. That's where you change trains or leave your car or something like that. Good luck, Bill. Good to know. Excellent information. Thank you, guys. You bet. Thank You're you. Welcome. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Claire Loyag and Augustine Theritha. We're talking about Basque Country, and we're joined by guides from French Basque Country and Spanish Basque Country. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and Don's on the phone from San Francisco. Hey, Don, what's your favorite place in Basque Country? Donostia. <laughs> Donostia. Now, that's interesting because that's a different no, name. That's San Sebastian. Yeah. That's the Basque name for so, San Sebastian. Oh, now that's a good reminder. Bravo, Don, you're speaking Basque. See, I just think, I guess what the Spanish would call the big city, San, yeah. Saint Sebastian. No, we call it Donostia, Donosti. And, but and uh, I keep saying San Sebastian is more familiar for four years. Donostia. Yes. Okay, tell us about San Sebastian slash Donostia, Don. Oh, I loved it. I, You know, Rick, I wouldn't have gone there if it wasn't for you. <laughs> I mean, it's the best kept secret in all of Europe. And I'm ruining it. <laughs> <laughs> what did you like no, about I it? I almost dropped it off my list, you know. I, I spent a whole month in Spain, and I thought, gee, this is too much. I'm, maybe i got to cut something out. Yeah. And I'm so glad I didn't. You know, it was beautiful. I've never traveled anywhere just for pub food, but San Sebastian is the exception. You can get on a train for hours and go to San Sebastian, just spend an evening doing the pub crawl, don't eat lunch, come really hungry, and it's going to be one of the highlights of your trip. What? Tell us about your experience with the tapas in San Sebastian. The tapas were interesting because everywhere else, you know, the tapas are right there on the bar. It's like you can just grab them and, and they look better than everywhere else. Mm. And 
And the funny thing is that some French family came in, and they stopped me from grabbing what I was going to grab. And he was like, no, no. He told me what to order, champignon, and it was just great. Mushrooms. Yeah. And they're very competitive. It's very visual. What If you see it, if it looks good, you can just grab it. I would remind you, though, that on the blackboard above it is the hot dishes. And, Augustine, what is the advice for hot hot dishes that are not on the table? Yes, these are the pinchos calientes, and these are coming extract from the kitchen. They're freshly cooked, and they're very impressive. You can tell they have this influence of the modern cuisine that has turned San Sebastian, this culinary capital of, of the world. I would always suggest people to go for that. I mean, mm. it's very tempting to eat all that food in the counter. Yeah. But also try be more adventurous and try that food that is exposed on this blackboard mm-hmm. on the wall. So for a quick bite, you see something, an uh, open-faced sandwich on the bar, grab it. It's a couple, couple euros. That's great. But if you want to have a meal, it takes a little more time. You have to be aggressive because there's so many locals that speak the language <laughs> and they know how to get service, so the yes. tourist can be ignored. <laughs> yeah. You have to bully and belly up to the bar there and, and say, excuse me, yes. I want that. Yes, you have to catch the, uh, the call, the attention of the, uh, of the bartender, yeah. make your way to the... Did you manage, Don, at the bar okay? Oh, I was a hero at the bar because I play in this band and my keyboard player is Basque, and he told me to order something, I, I don't know how to say it in Spanish, but it ended in en su tinta. It was squid in its own ink. Oh, chipiron en su tinta, chipiron. <laughs> oh, is yeah. that? Say that again slowly. <laughs> Say that again. What? Chipiron en su tinta. Chipiron en su tinta. Tinta? Oh, en tinta. Okay, tinta. so squid in its own ink. Yes. Nice. All right, Yeah, Don. so you get this dish and it's black and, and all these tourists were going, what's he eating? <laughs> and, the, and the bartender goes like, he, he said it in Spanish, like, he's a brave man. <laughs> <laughs> he's a brave man and a smart tourist. <laughs> it was great. Well, apart from eating, uh, the city has, it's sort of entertaining. There's uh, that amusement park up on the hill. Mm-hmm, I love that. That was fantastic, because it's so old. Yeah. You would never allow rides like this in America. I mean, it was wonderful. And, and then just incredible beach. It's just that, that crescent beach, uh, beautiful sand. I lucked out, and the scary thing about the beach is, People are half-naked, and that's weird for Americans. Oh, it's very stressful to see half-naked people on the beach. I, I, yes. just, I, have to, I try to get used to it by going every day. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I had lovely weather. They told me I lucked out because they had beautiful weather and went swimming. <laughs> it sounds like you're a walking advertisement for San Sebastian. <laughs> oh, absolutely. San Sebastian with Don from San Francisco. Don, thanks for your call. Okay, Rick. See you. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Claire Loyag and Augustine Sarisa, and we're talking about Basque Country. And Claire and Augustine, teach me just a little phrase that you think a traveler should know when they're visiting your homeland. First of all, Claire, what, what should I know when I'm coming to... Is it just it, bonjour, yeah, merci? Yeah, if you enter somewhere, say egunon. What is egunon? Egunon is bonjour, uh, hello. Uh, egunon is, means the day and on. Good. So okay. Good. So day. and even when I'm in France, yeah, the, people appreciate the best. Oh yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. You can good. say egunon, bonjour, but they will always appreciate if you say something. They'll be that. surprised to hear a tourist say. Yeah, egunon. exactly. Augustine, what will I say in uh, Spanish Basque Country? Well, you use the Basque language again, and uh, you will get a more credit, some more credit, <laughs> a bigger <laughs> smile. Yes, yeah. a bigger smile. And how do you say? Uh, how do you say thank you? Thank you, Escaricasco. I usually tell my two members to, you know, the Costco supermarket. Yeah. It can be scary to go into Costco. So scary Costco. <laughs> <laughs> scary Costco. 
Yes. I'm learning Basque. Yes, yeah. you are. Oh, scary Cusco very much. Yes. <laughs> All right. Happy travels, both of you. Happy Thank travels, you very much. Next, we'll discover the Sunday afternoon delights of a typical village in the English countryside, the kind of place where you can stroll past half-timbered cottages while nursing an ice cream cone, stop in a small tea shop for a cuppa, and maybe decipher the poetry on the gravestones outside a very old church. Escape to the scenic villages of England with us next on Travel with Rick Steves. Think of it, an English village. It conjures up so much in the American traveler's imagination. Thatched roof villages frozen in time, half-timbered cottages, fields lined with hedgerows, a tea room where all the good gossip happens, and a cozy pub where friends gather each evening. We're joined now by two English guides to see if this reality of the village life of England still exists today. We're joined by Mark Seymour, who's from southwest England and lived in Bath, one of the most charming cities anywhere in Europe, and Lorraine Deneen, who lives in the Cotswolds near the town of Winchcombe. Lorraine and Mark, thanks for being with us. Good to be here. So as I was reading through that idealistic, sort of clichetic English village sort of image, is that real? Can we find that in our travels these days? Where would you go to find that English village charm? It is still there, particularly in places like the Cotswolds or in southwest England. So you can still find that pub. You can still find that community spirit. You can still find all those quirky things. And the thatched roofs and the half-timbered cottages haven't gone away. They're still there. One of the uh, most charming things about village life still to be found on a Sunday. Uh, you drive through any part of the southwest of England, parts of southern England, is the thwack of a cricket bat on a cricket ball uh, on, the, on the village green. The thwack still, of a, still of a cricket bat. Cricket bat, yes. I that love that. thwack of willow on, on, on leather. Oh, yeah. Still here on a Sunday, yeah. Now, there's a pride that goes with these villages. I, there's even a, isn't there a best-kept village competition? There certainly is, yeah. There's the best-kept village competition, which still runs. And a lot of villages pride themselves on winning it year after year in their regions. So, Mark was talking about the cricket as well. After the cricket, of course, the ladies will have provided the tea for the, the guys who are playing the cricket. That still goes on. The village pub is still often the centre of activity in each village. I swear, those pubs, it's like they're right out of Casting Central, and they're yeah. just your basic pub. It's, it's still the heart of village life. Um, the English boys like to drink. Of course, there are mm -hmm. reasons for that. We're familiar with those. But um, the, the buzz of activity that happens in a pub is wonderful. If there's a charitable event, if there's a football match, uh, they're advertised first and foremost in the local pub. Word of mouth spreads throughout the village very quickly there. General knowledge quiz competitions take place in pubs. Uh, there are entire leagues that take and place. And things in like dominoes. Don't forget dominoes as well as darts. There are dominoes and cribbage. Cribbage, league. yes. And cribbage. It doesn't, there's no dark, foreboding, American tavern kind of feeling to it. It's like for all the generations, it's the dog is there. It's you just pull up cozy. a stool and you talk to the person closest to you and you have a friend for life. Yeah, yeah. You, can, you can take your dog in as well most of the time, which is really good. And in a lot of villages, particularly in the recession pubs were closing and there are quite a few villages where people got together clubbed together to buy the village pub 
and open it as like a cooperative. Or to keep a pub in the village, because if a tiny village going. loses its pub, that's, that's right. bad news. Yeah. So there's local customs, and you, if you're traveling, you can be lucky. Uh, let's talk about a few of those. I, I think, Lorraine, you were talking about a, the horn dance? or Yeah, I come from the county of Staffordshire and lived in a village called Abbots Bromley. And uh, every year on the first Monday in September, guys in the village are designated to go and get the deer antlers that hang in the church. The deer antlers have been carbon dated and they're over a thousand years old. And they've been used every year on the first Monday in September. And they dance around the village, dressed up as strange things, carrying these antlers with them. And at every pub they stop and they do like a bit of a Morris dance. You know what Morris dance is? They do one of those. And the ceremony goes on all day. And at the end of the day, they take the antlers back to the church, hang them back up on the church wall. That one's unique to Abbots Bromley. Right. Mark probably knows about m- more of that. I mean, there's the cheese rolling in Gloucestershire. In Gloucestershire, yes, so What is the yes. cheese rolling? It's marvellous. It's a very steep hill outside of a, a village. It's actually become popular now. Several villages do it. Um, but it started in Gloucestershire, a very steep hill. They produce a beautiful uh, red Gloucestershire cheese, um, and they come in these cheese wheels, which I'm sure you're familiar with, a big block of cir- oh, yeah. circular block of cheese. Yeah. And it became popular to chase a wheel of cheese down this hill. So you roll the cheese down, and then 50, 60 villagers will chase it down the hill. The person to get the cheese wins the cheese. It's now come to the point where the hundreds or if not thousands of people from all over the country descend on this village to chase the Chasing cheese. Chasing a wheel of cheese down the hill? And you have to have paramedics and hospital ambulances waiting for those broken-boned victims at the bottom oh, who chase it so quickly they fall down well, the hill. Well, the local authorities tried to stop it. In fact, they went as far as getting the police in to try and stop it because it's a really dangerous thing to do. Now, that's something I've never encountered in all of my days, and that's in the Cotswolds. What about just markets? Do, does every village have a, a weekly market? Is that I come from a part of the world where um, markets are still institutional. Being rural, they were originally cattle markets, but something that's developed in, uh, in the west of England, southwest of England, in Devon in particular, around Dartmoor, are what we call the pannier markets. Anybody that speaks French will understand that means basket markets. And they're indoor markets um, every week, sometimes twice a week. Uh, the ladies of the village communities and the rural communities would bring their homespun goods into the village. So this is to give cottage industries like cottage a, industry, a, yes, a, a little uh, avenue to sell things. Yes, and it's been happening for a couple of hundred years and they uh, had domain inside. Are these cottage industries still existing? Are there people making uh, sideline livings, knitting and carving? and I think more so than perhaps any time in the last 50, 60 years. I think it's becoming a... a Obviously, tourism is big in mm-hmm. many of these areas now, so they can sell homespun clothing, for instance. I know a couple of ladies in the Clavelli area who have spinning wheels and are spinning wool um, and selling it in the pannier markets to the locals. A lot of it involves cake making as well. Every week, homemade cakes are available. Nice. And the Women's Institute, certainly in my part of the world, they're the ones who hold the markets every week. And you get there early because you want the best cakes. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking English villages with Mark Seymour and Lorraine Deneen. You know, all over Europe, it's the villages that a lot of people are thinking are the, the charming, quaint aspect of that culture. But it's, it's a challenge for villages to stay viable these days because young people want to go to the big city where there's a chance for more lively opportunities and better work, better paying work and so on. On the other hand, people can these days uh, telecommute and they suppose they could live almost anywhere and do their work online. I know in Europe... Some countries are actually subsidizing the continued viability of these villages. Doesn't France have a program, SOS or something, where they will help 
anybody who wants to run the little general store, they'll actually make it cheaper for them to do that? Yes, in fact, uh, not tax-free, but you don't have to be licensed to run a bakery in France, for instance, in a village. As long as it's in a village, you don't have to have And that's a, a law that the French have decided to offer in order to give people who want to stay in the villages a little extra help. Yes, yes, that's right. Just uh, like the pub is instrumental in English village life, the bakery is in French village life. Yeah. So the, the it's just a natural inclination for young people to want to go to the big city where the action is and to get uh, a good job. What's the impact of this dynamic on the English countryside lately? One of the things that's that's happened more recently, particularly in the Cotswolds, because it's quite a rich area, the Cotswolds, because it's close to London or closer to London. People move out of London to go and live in the Cotswolds and people want to bring their families up in the country. So more and more people are now moving into the villages with young kids just to get away from the city. And you're right, they can work from home. They don't have to be in the office right. every day. Or there are bullet trains and express ways that take you into yeah. the big city so you can actually commute four days a week or whatever into the big city and still have a country lifestyle. It's, it's created a bit of a problem in the southwest of England, further west than the Cotswolds, um, but rail connections now have enabled people who are selling their very expensive, very valuable properties in, in the big cities such as London, and they're able to buy two or three cottages elsewhere in England. That's but amazing. They, they move down to the west country and they buy a cottage, forces the house prices up considerably, mm-hmm. dramatically, which means that those farming lads and, and lasses who are on minimum wage can't afford to stay in the same community. They're being forced out. So that's a, a new struggle that village life is dealing with in Britain. It is a new struggle. One of the big problems, again, in villages is the age of the population. Older and older people, people are retiring into the villages. Mm. So the age of the population is much higher than maybe in the towns. One thing the government has done more recently is subsidise public transport, putting buses on into villages to get people from the villages into the towns to do their shopping, to visit their doctor, go to the hospitals, the libraries. Necessary because a lot of these residents probably aren't comfortable driving anymore. That's right. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking English villages with Mark Seymour and Lorraine Deneen. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Robert's calling from Franklin in Tennessee. Robert, thanks for the call. Hello, Rick. Nice to hear your voice. Yeah, do you have a comment or a question for Mark or Lorraine about English village life? We do, actually. We're going to be traveling in England for about two weeks with some friends, renting a car and just exploring where our nose goes. Would love tips about anywhere in the Cotswolds. We have a place rented in Stowe on the Wald, I think, if I'm somewhere outside of in the country, but would love tips on anything. Thanks, Robert, and you've, I've got you covered in Stowe. That's my favorite home base, but Lorraine lives in a little village nearby there, and Lorraine, if, if you had uh, some friends staying in Stowe with a car and wanted to follow their nose, uh, where would you send them? Okay, Stowe on the Wall's a great base because it's fairly central to some great small towns. Chipping Camden is a town you really have to visit, Robert, which is not far from Stowe. Chipping Camden has got the longest medieval street in Britain, maybe Europe, I'm not sure, but that's full of ancient buildings and it's got a fantastic church. You might not have heard about the wool churches in the Cotswolds. Even tiny villages have magnificent churches, most of which are open at all times. And these are paid for by wool money, by big wool merchants. So a little humble town will have this incredible wool cathedral out of oversized and it goes back to that rich uh, sheep heritage. (laughs) Yeah, uh, 14th 14th century England in particular was a very, very wealthy place and it was all based on sheep 
basically. It was all based on wool. So the merchants built these fantastic churches. Every little village you go to in the Cotswolds, just pull up outside the church. It's probably going to be open. Somebody's responsible mm-hmm. for opening up the church every day. And you'll see a list of pastors that goes back 500 years nonstop yeah. on the wall. In yeah, the no right. kidding. No, it's true. It's true, I love true, that. true. So go to Chipping Camden. Go to Broadway. Broadway is another fantastic little Cotswold town not far from Stowe. Go to Morton in Marsh. It's just down the road from Stowe on the Wold. Another beautiful little Cotswold town full of yellow Cotswold stone buildings, Mm. some of them thatched. You know, one thing I would also offer, Robert, is to make a point to take a hike. It's so easy when you have a car to stay on the roads, but every time I just commit two or three hours to a walk, you could take a taxi. Yeah. You could take a taxi from Stowe to wherever somebody tells you to go, and then get the local map and and then get off the roads and walk for a couple hours back to Stowe. That way, you get to see amazing uh, country farm life from the back door. Well, if I visit too many pubs, my wife might make me do that anyway. So that might be a two for one there. You got pubs every time you take a walk, Mark. <laughs> if you go a little bit further west from the Cotswolds, you find yourself up on the, uh, the the Wiltshire and Salisbury Downs. One last question. Any comments or suggestions on North Wales? I know you like Conway a lot. Any comments about that area? Mark, do you have a comment about that? I do. I love Conway. I go up there frequently, both touring and personally. I have friends up there. Um, but if you like walking, which it sounds like you do, uh, Conway is uh, on the edge of uh, northern Snowdonia, one of our, our national parks. Mountainous area, not high mountains, but it's very easy to navigate. You can walk very easily. Well-marked trails all over Snowdonia. Mm. Uh, a beautiful place to go and visit. Beautiful place. It's uh, adjacent to the sea, so you have a combination of the sea and, and plenty of characteristic pubs for Robert. There, there you go. Life is good. good. (laughs) Life is good. Have fun, Robert. Thanks for the call. Take care. Thank you. And Janice is calling from Sagamore Hills in Ohio. Janice, thanks for your call. Uh, Thank you, Rick. Um, I'm sort of calling to complain because I just got back from Europe, and I drove for a week in the U.K., and it was a terrible experience. If I'd only known, I never would have done it. I would have taken a bus tour. But those small towns... And those roundabouts, Bath, Salisbury, the Cotswolds. I just gave up on the Cotswolds. It was, streets were too narrow. It was very difficult. I just wanted to escape to the Scottish Highlands, which I did. But I wanted to go to York and Durham, and I just said, no, I don't want to deal with roundabouts. At that point, it was my last day. And I wish somebody had said that. I, I guess I never heard anyone say not to try it. And I've driven all over the world, so I thought I could do it. And I hit a t- I hit a curb at 50 miles an hour and blew a tire. Because, oh no! And, and, it, and it was a tiny car. I got a tiny car on purpose. But the roads are so narrow, and they have no berms. They just have curbs. Right. You know, when you get out there, the the roads are are narrow and the hedges are high, uh, especially down in the, the southwest. Yes. Oh, in uh, in Devonshire, I'm I very know, glad you I, didn't get down there. I, the, uh, the I had a great trip, but, you know, that was the only negative part of my one-month trip. And I did drive in Belgium, too, on the right side, so that helped make up for it. But I love the U.K., I love London, and I'd love to go back to those little towns, but not driving. I was just going to say, Janice, I'm very glad you didn't get down to Devon driving if, if you felt that way. It can be difficult, can't it, in another country in a strange vehicle. But the lanes are sunk there. I was um, down in Devon, and I was so thankful my tour guide was, we were using his car, because these are 
1.2 lane roads and if there's you're two-way traffic if you're lucky yes, and then every yes. hundred yards there's a pullout yes and yes. uh you just and the the hedges are taller than the car it's lush and it is uh, a little bit nerve-wracking and one thing i learned on my last trip to england janice is the bus connections between cities are very inexpensive and very relaxing and i just yeah. i i took the bus from oxford to cambridge and it was a delightful experience and it only cost me six or eight pounds or something like that Next time. Yeah, next time. All right. Well, good luck. And remember, uh, if, if you're almost in a near head-on collision in England, uh, you're probably on the wrong side of the road. <laughs> good luck, Janice. Okay. Our guides to the villages of the English countryside on Travel with Rick Steves are Lorraine Deneen and Mark Seymour. They offer a little more advice to help you get comfortable driving on the narrow country roads of England and a short extra to this week's show. It's posted at ricksteves.com slash radio. Let's uh, finish off our discussion on English village life by having each of you just share one favorite village experience that would inspire us all to make sure we get away from the big cities and not only get to a little village, but find a way to connect with that community. Mark, do you have an idea? Yeah, I do. My favorite village, and one close to me, is a fishing village called Clavelli. Um, it's very famous. It is a, a UNESCO part of a UNESCO World Heritage Site. But uh, there are no cars allowed in the village. It's one streets that goes from the top of a cliff all the way down to a fishing port and a quayside or quayside. And this bottom. is way in the south of England on the west coast. This near... is southwest of England on North Devon, the northern side of Dartmoor. Right. Um, okay. Backs onto the North Atlantic. A very, very beautiful walk. And what I would highly recommend anybody in that part of the world to do is to park the car at the top, walk all the way down through uh, up along the name of the street, up along all the way down to the quayside at the bottom. It's daunting. When you look down that street, you think, I have to walk back up there make the effort to get down there. And He's this standing, is Cloverly, C-L-O-V-E. Uh, yes, it's spelled Cloverly, but we pronounce it Clovelly, C-L-O-V-E-L-L-Y. At the bottom, there's a, one of the oldest fishing key sites in the world, made of nice. pebbles the size of a car. Nice. And Lorraine? Um, well, being from the Cotswolds, I have to mention two Cotswold villages, Lower Slaughter and Upper Slaughter. And if you just walk between the two you'll see everything that's wonderful about village life in the Cotswolds. You can walk across a ford in the stream. You can watch kids playing in the stream, the village kids playing in the stream. When you get to Upper Slaughter, just get yourself an elderflower and gooseberry ice cream at the shop there. Lorraine and Mark, thanks so much for joining us, and uh, I'll see you for tea in Upper Slaughter. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Rick. I like a nice cup of tea in the morning For to start the day, you see And at half past eleven Well, my idea of heaven is a nice cup of tea I like a nice cup of tea with my dinner And a nice cup of tea with my tea And when it's time for bed, there's a lot to be said for a nice cup of tea. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton, Casimir Hall, and Donna Bardsley. Our website is managed by Andrew Wakeling. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank, and radio affiliate relations are by Sheila Gerzoff. When you're traveling, find out when other stations are travel with Rick Steves. There's a link to our affiliate listings in the radio section of our website, it's at ricksteves.com slash radio. We'll see you next week for more Travel with Rick Steves.
Hey, I'm Rick Steves. In my latest book, For the Love of Europe, you can savor Europe's most exciting experiences and sights through a hundred of my favorite travel stories. Imagine hanging from an alpine ridge, dancing at a Turkish circumcision party, and swinging with a bell ringer in a medieval church spire. You can order your copy of For the Love of Europe at ricksteves.com.